Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and Twitch, and sometimes I even upload the good bits. This is Previously Live. Hello, can you hear me? Howdy! Good evening. That was an interesting last uh, fellow you had on your stream there. I just yeah. turned it off so that I won't be uh, seeing any of the comments and hearing any feedback. But That's uh, wise. Uh, nothing but the best for my audience, conversationally. And, and hence, here you are. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll have to apologize a little bit in advance because um, aside from my prepared comments, I wrote down most of my big spiels here. Um, I'm just not really that talented at public debate and speaking, so I hope you'll forgive me a little bit for you know, stumbling or tripping over my words. Yeah, I think we got the reflexive antagonism out of the way in the last third of the previous conversation. So I, I say I've, I'm here for it. Great, thank you. So, uh, thanks for having me on your program. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you. I've spent some time on your Discord over the last two weeks or so and have had productive conversations with several of its members. I think that despite differences that people have in policy, Generally, everyone's aim is to reach the best result for the people of this country and the world, and that we just have different ideas of how to reach that. I think that everyone's opinion should be listened to and considered because we can gain valuable ideas from their input and their experiences, which helps us create better policy. Ultimately, I operate pragmatically and believe in discussing everything in good faith. That's why I'm here today talking with you, who I would generally consider to be on the other side of the economic spectrum. Yeah, I'd say so, probably. And also, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, I'm what today would be considered a moderate Republican, although 10 years ago I'd have been considered quite conservative. Of course, aside from the needle shifting, my views have also developed since that time too. I do work in local and state-level politics aimed at reversing the negative economic trends in my state. I also do a little national-level stuff too, but my influence there is limited. And the only real thing I've tried is pushing legislation that punishes predatory scalping of computer components and game consoles. Oh my, well, okay, hold on. Hold on. I think maybe, maybe we can uh, right off the bat agree to something good. Uh, thank you. <laughs> well, I, I think we'll find more to agree about than to disagree ultimately. While it may not be for most bombastic stream that you've had, uh, I think it'll be uh, quite enjoyable. My audience will survive. And uh, anything that involves uh, preventing video game and PC parts scalping, I think, is, uh, uh, you know, just, just a, a borderline axiomatic good. So, um, we'll yeah, live. Fuck those people. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll also let you know ahead of time, I'm not big on semantic argument. So if I feel something is coming to that, I'll probably submit on it and wish to move on, as I think that the overall policy ideas are more important. Um, the topics I'd like to discuss with you are tax policy, economic slash business policy, and lobbying. Um, tax policy will be more brief and obviously a bit more mundane. Uh, economic slash business policy is a big topic and probably the biggest reason I wanted to come onto your program. Uh, I'd like to hit lobbying last, but of the other two, which would you like to discuss first? Oh, I have no preference. I'm happy to debate all three or discuss. Cool. Um, I guess we'll just start tax policy, get it off uh, nice and slow. 
there's a few specific examples I'd like to talk about, though. Um, part of operating pragmatically is that I generally consider policy as it pertains to what we can actually accomplish from a given position. While it would be ideal to like snap our fingers and dictate the tax policy of every local and state government in America, the reality is that we have to work within the systems we can affect while respecting the effects that the existing systems of surrounding areas will have. Like if you just raise taxes to 100%, the people and companies will move out and then your system collapses. But that's obviously an extreme example. Does, does that make sense? Yes, of course. You have to take into awesome. account the consequences. You know, if we could snap our fingers, I wouldn't bother with tax policy at all. We'd be in communism and that seems a bit unhelpful. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Taxes taken in by state and local governments are generally made up by three taxes, largely. Income taxes, both personal and corporate, sales taxes, and property taxes. Which of these three do you believe should be making up a majority or plurality of tax receipts in a state or local tax system if the aim is to provide for a growing economy and to most benefit the average working class and poor resident, or to put it in a tax way, the lowest quintiles? Well, I don't know the relative proportions right now, and I imagine it would vary quite a bit per state. Um, I know that I favor sales tax the least of those three, because sales tax is um, uh, regressive in, in, its, in its effect, um, and would disproportionately affect the poor, because a disproportionate amount of their income goes towards, um, you know, buying food or whatever. Um, in terms of where this all goes, I, I suppose I, I, I don't know exactly which I'd favor first, but I would prioritize income through property tax and through income tax uh, well before I would sales tax. I've seen some stuff on, like, I know sales tax uh, is, well, well, not an insignificant contributor to the state budget, you know. I feel like there's more work to be made up in the other ends. You know, you're 100% right. Uh, I generally believe that sales taxes are a necessary evil within a tax system and should be the most variable. They should be the tertiary part of the tax system. They should be the most flexible, raising and lowering based on the needs of the budget because sales taxes are extremely regressive. And the problem is that's a concept that that's largely misunderstood by local policymakers. Those people think that, you know, logically, since everyone buys stuff, everyone will pay the same amount of sales tax and that simple exemptions to things like food and medicine are enough to make it progressive. But as you stated, uh, studies show that the proportion of one's income paid in sales tax is highly tied to their income level, with the lowest incomes paying almost the actual rate of sales tax as part of their income, and higher income people ultimately paying many times lower than that due to their spending tendencies. Um, yeah, marginally so, yeah. Uh, uh, vanishingly small amount. In terms of the income tax versus the... Um, property tax. I, I, I don't really know which is greater generally. Well, here here in Washington, we don't have a state tax. So I guess I know which is greater here. Um, I, 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 this is going to vary massively, like state to state. Um, I do feel like we need to massively restructure the way we look at property taxes right now. I know that a lot of um, a lot of housing stuff is handled on a state and city level, so it seems also right that a majority of the taxes would come from, uh, you know, property taxes, which are managed at that level, as opposed to a state income tax, which is, you know, essentially just a lower cut of something that affects everyone federally, whatever job they have, you know? Right. Um, you know, property taxes, 
my belief is they should actually make up the lion's share of the budget. Um, the majority of property taxes, in my state at least, are paid by companies. Uh, I imagine it's probably true in most states. Property tax receipts are generally going to remain consistent year over year. And this is the important part. They have a beneficial effect on home values. Home values are driven down by increases in property tax as the cost ownership of any asset directly affects its value. Since the cost of ownership will increase, the value of the home will decline, which more easily opens up home ownership to lower incomes since the biggest barrier to home ownership is the upfront cost involved. Something I'm doing with right now, I'm trying to save up you know, a down payment for a house, uh, which of course that scales directly with the value of a property. I never actually thought of that. The idea, yeah, because essentially if you raise property taxes, what you're doing is you're cutting down the upfront cost for a more, more of a long-term, um, you know, for, for, for uh, portioning out that cost more long-term. And it is the upfront thing that's mostly the problem. Because after all, if it was just the monthly payments people took issue with, I mean, people rent, you know, like a, a mortgage and a rent. The rent's usually going to cost more for the same property because you're covering the mortgage of the landowner. Oh, I, I didn't even think of that outcome. Yeah, I think uh, 100% property taxes every year. Um, that's my that's my new policy position, I'd say, as a governor. Awesome. Um, and I'll just hit income tax real briefly here since, uh, you know, regarding personal income tax, I think we can briefly agree that a very progressive system of personal income tax is the only logical way of using it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has awesome. to be. Awesome. Uh, I think that they should be secondary to property taxes. Uh, personal income taxes have a very strong effect on individuals' choice of where to live. And because lower income people have much less mobility in that regard, higher rates of personal income tax will, over time, more negatively affect lower income people as the higher income ones relocate outside of a locality to avoid taxes. Aside from the government not receiving you know, its income and their income and their property taxes, these people will be less likely to frequent the shops, the restaurants, the auto repair stores, or the local establishments within the original locale, which hurts the prosperity of the working class people of that area. There's a happy medium dependent on the area and the surrounding areas where income taxes of a certain level raise tax receipts without driving away enough higher income individuals to cause such a drop. What do you think about that? No, I think that's perfectly agreeable, yeah. Uh, the, the right the right to go find something better is something usually reserved for people with the capital to do so. Um, otherwise, you're stuck with what you're stuck with. Um, you know, with regards to like um, income tax, you know, relative to, to property taxes and stuff like that, it does feel like there's more flexibility as well with what housing situation you want to live in. You know, people can live with like family members, especially if you're poor, like that's one of the backup options, right? You live with friends, you live with roommates, uh, you live with uh, your parents, and that's a way of, of I think, sort of um, flexibly adjusting the relationship that you have with whatever the housing market in your area is, which of course would be affected by the property taxes. But income taxes, not so much. I mean, you work the job you work, right? Most poor people don't have that choice, um, or at least not much choice when it comes to that, or, or, or to move states and get a lower income tax. So yeah, I think I agree with everything you've said so far. Great. Well, uh, that's our brief uh, discussion on tax policy then. If, if we're pretty much in agreement there. And I, I figured we would generally find most areas of agreement on that. Um, so I guess we'll move on to 
business and economic policy. Um, I expect both of us to learn a lot on this conversation. Uh, this is, I, I imagine is so. Developing. Yeah, I don't Go normally ahead. get in the weeds on stuff like this on my stream, so you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm stanced up. I'm ready uh, to to talk about real issues instead of what people said on Twitter. Yeah, you know, I I've, I've watched a bunch of your streams the last couple of weeks, and the philosophy stuff, you know, that that kind of flies over my head a little bit because it's not an area I'm well versed in. I'm certainly learning a lot uh, watching it, even, even though obviously necessarily there's a lot of things I disagree about. Um, but I, I'm hoping that a policy discussion still interests uh, your audience. I think it will. Awesome. So for economic and business policy, I think that we need to look closely at the relationship between business management practices and business education with the growing wealth and income inequality issue in this country. Income inequality is something like tripled in the last 40 years, and wealth inequality is also you know, doubled or something. I don't have the exact numbers here in front of me, sorry. Uh, but that problem causes a lot more issues than the obvious one, and that is the obvious one is working class people being underpaid. Healthy economies rely on those inequality rates to be as low as possible. The reason for that is twofold. One, it enables higher rates of social mobility, allowing more people with good ideas to become successful and therefore implement those good ideas, leading to a higher quality of life for everyone, the society improves. Secondly, the lower quintiles directly spend a higher proportion of their income, putting that money back into the economy and growing it. Higher growth in the economy, again, raises the standard of living across the board more quickly. I'll explain on how business policy is the driver of these things, but first, do you agree with those ideas on wealth and income inequality? I do. Cool. All right, so here's where business policy ties in and where I think that your ideas on uh, worker ownership and participation in uh, company management are particularly useful in policymaking. Are you familiar with the business management concept of shareholder value? I am. Awesome. For those in your audience that are not familiar, it's where the management of a business is centered completely around raising the stock price of a company as much as possible to create high financial returns for investors. It was popularized as the premier business management strategy, largely because of Jack Welch's management of GE. It existed before that, but Jack Welch made it very popular. Cut costs, gutted supposed inefficiencies, and strategically used his company's money for the sole purpose of raising the stock price. With those ideas, of course, the stock price rose which made the investors and day traders very happy. And those people then pushed to have his ideas integrated into business schools across the country as the right way to run a company. With business schools teaching shareholder value, current and next generation of managers and executives operate centered around its ideas. Shareholder value isn't even a flawed concept, it's an unmitigated disaster in terms of its effects on companies, its effects on employees, and its effect on the economy as a whole. The effect on employees is probably the best understood one. You know, most companies now actively work to minimize employee pay and benefits, maximize their workloads and responsibilities, uh, you know, leading to a stark increase in income and wealth inequality and a lower quality of life for those workers. Executives get rewarded by investors for this behavior with large bonuses, often based on a percentage of how much they've raised the value of a stock. So, you know, aside from their business education they're now receiving, those executives are also financially incentivized, excuse me, to engage in such predatory behavior. 
The effect on companies is also deleterious. I'd like to explain this with an example. Are you familiar with how Boeing operated as a company up until it acquired McDonnell Douglas around the turn of the millennium? Anecdotally, but not severely, no. Cool. Boeing operated in a way that I think you may be a bit happier with in terms of how a company should be run. Is, is that, you know, matched kind of what you thought anecdotally? Yeah, I, I, I had a, uh, there was a friend of my grandfather who worked there around that time and for a long time before and after. Um, so I heard some stuff like that. I never looked into it though. Gotcha. So Boeing executives and managers were generally all promoted internally from entry level positions, mostly the engineers. Because of that, they cared for their average employees who enjoyed great work schedules and high pay and benefits. And also, if my memory serves me, those employees were given ownership as part of their compensation. The employees, and especially the engineers, had huge influence on not only Boeing products, the airplanes, but on how the company itself was run. Because of that, the employees tended to stay with Boeing their entire careers, and as they grew in ability, experience, and familiarity with Boeing products, those products became highly successful. If everyone that's designing and building something has been doing so for a long time, the consistency of staying in that position has a strong synergetic effect with the outcome. Boeing was highly successful under this paradigm of lead with the employees, and they will lead you to success. You think that if we were to stay under a capitalist system, that this type of company governance and operation is most beneficial to the working class? Hmm. Well, Boeing's system is definitely preferable. It seems like the attitude that a lot of these companies have with the maximization of shareholder value um, incurs a different set of priorities. It's one of the big reasons that corporations will promote their CEOs from outside uh, and their higher management as well, uh, because they're looking for, I, I, I feel like they're looking for loyalty first and foremost, you know. If you have an engineer who works at Boeing um, and they've worked there for 25 years and they're dedicated and good, you know, you could promote them to management, and I think that's a good thing to do. But there's a logic there that in doing so, you're really only promoting them out of their best place. And that the best kind of manager you could get is some kind of, you know, generic middle manager who, who's, who, you know, being brought in essentially as a, a permanent consultant, you know, uh, the, with their only real concern being their ability to answer to higher management. And I feel like that sort of um, shiftless management category where people are constantly jumping between jobs you know ceos will spend two years here and four years there and everywhere i feel like these these ideas make sense if your goal is to maximize shareholder uh value but obviously that doesn't pan out well for everyone i i get the shareholder value thing because it's a very strong empirical measurement stock price is literally charted on a graph it's very easy to figure out it's basically like a number telling you how popular a company is and how good it's doing relative to other times in its existence. And I understand that empiricism is attractive. And obviously the shareholders want to make more money. There's no getting around that. But the shiftlessness, uh, th the set of priorities that make line go up, I don't think they build a, um, a very strong uh, corporation in, in terms of like internal loyalty uh, in terms of discipline and in terms of like a relationship to your workplace or to use a Marxian term, the degree of alienation uh, that you experience, you know, I think that 
nowadays people feel much more detached from their workplaces than they did maybe, you know, 70 years ago, back when unions were stronger and people might work at a factory for like 35 years consecutively, you know, when management was promoted internally, it felt like there was a bit more of a, you know, an internal community. And I think Boeing hit on that maybe a, a little bit later than a lot of other comparable companies. It's still capitalism, mind you. There are still problems with the structure, but I definitely think that's preferable to what a lot of other companies have done. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head here, Bosch. Boeing, good to know. <laughs> you know, it, and this is what I'm talking about with ways that we can interact and figure out good ideas, because we could both sit here and say, you know, this is a problem for the left. This is a problem for the right. It's not a problem for either side. It's a problem for the people in this country. When these companies move from management styles that reward everyone that works for them into ones that don't. And, you know, that just contributes to the income and wealth inequality problem, which you might not think off the top of your head that conservatives and Republicans uh, see the wealth and income inequality is a bad thing. But, you know, I was originally introduced to this concept from a dude who's 70, almost 71 years old now, who, you know, served in, uh, in politics for a long time as a Republican. And I was, I was kind of shocked at first. I was like, you know, this was probably four or five years ago. I said, how is, how is it that this, this capitalism, you know, this wealth and income inequality, you know, how is that a bad thing? And then I started doing my research. And that's led me to where I am today. Uh, now I'm kind of going on a soliloquy. I apologize about that. Well, I'll admit I'm, I'm perplexed by the association. There's no denying that, you know, advocacy against income inequality is definitely overwhelmingly associated with the left politically. Um, I, I know that there's, there's kind of a paradigm shift with some groups, you know, like blue dog Democrats who were relatively reactionary but cared about their unions, used to vote blue, but now they mostly vote red. And there were a lot of people who voted for Trump because they thought that he would bring, you know, manufacturing back in the Rust Belt. So I know there, I know there is like, there is a wedge, there is like an element of the group where income inequality is a severe concern and then you vote Republican. And I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll admit, I think that there are at times tenuous connections there, but, um, if, if, if people care about, you know, the same shared outcome, I'm happy to, to, to work with them on that as long as it's not to the, to the, to the you know, the exclusion of other values. Right. Right. And I'll, I'll briefly mention, since you said other values, uh, because I, th I think a lot of people may not recognize this, but when it comes to many social issues that are you know, part of the Republican Party, quote unquote, platform, uh, stuff like LGBT rights, um, and then some other ones I can't think of off the top of my head because I'm live on air, but... Uh, there are a lot of them. It's... If I'm going to be frank, it's all boomer shit. The folks that are involved in politics that are my age, uh, you know, 20s and 30s, we, we're all on the same page here. Republican, Democrat, everyone deserves rights. Everyone deserves the same treatment. It's ridiculous that 
we're, we're trying to decide, you know, government should decide what, you know, you have to be this gender or that gender. No, you can be any gender you want, and we're going to call you by whatever you prefer. It's all the old boomer bullshit that's keeping it from progressing. Uh, and I actually think you'll find that on both sides of the political spectrum. I think that there's, while it's not as common on the Democrat side, there's uh, certainly still some resistance from the old guard there as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I just wanted to touch on that. No, no, I, I get it. I mean, I do know there is a, a, a strong contingent of young Republicans who are all, you know, avid Ben Shapiro watchers, but I don't think they're the majority oh, at Lord. all. The numbers indicate they're a pretty small minority, I think, at least relative to previous generations. I, I, I will admit then, you know, out of curiosity, um, and, and we don't have to argue the point because I want to talk econ, but what, what, what draws you then? You know, what's the, what, what pulls you red instead of blue? Because I don't believe that we should be combating business. I don't believe that we should be working against uh, companies. You know, it's, it's largely from an economic point of view. Uh, I think that there, we can do a lot more by working together and by leading companies to create better outcomes for our communities rather than trying to, uh, you know, and this is, this is, you know, very hyperbolic, but punish them or, or, uh, you know, something to that effect. Uh, and it's, it's a harder, it's a harder question for me these days than it used to be. Right. But the, the democratic party is continuing to go further left. It's, it's getting closer and closer to you than it is to me. Uh, given a few more years, inshallah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so I, I think that it'll be a little bit easier to answer the, that question at that point. But uh, it's also much easier for me to work within the Republican Party. Uh, and when you consider my point of view that everyone's goal is the same, we all want the best outcome for the people of this country and people of the world. Uh, that it doesn't really matter what card I'm carrying. Uh, I'm working to make things better. I'm not working to push an R or push a D. All right. I, uh, yeah, there's no need to split hairs over it. Not for this conversation, at least. I think, um, uh, oh, I'm interested then as we talk more about this, because I feel like the outcomes you're describing here, the things that we want changed, uh, are things that corporations will need to be pushed into doing. Or, or I guess to to frame it in in the relation to fr to frame it in a way relative to the earlier conversation I had today, you know, the material interests of uh, you know shareholders w precludes them towards managerial strategies that might not even be to their benefit, but certainly are not to the benefit of their workers, and that the best thing we can really do, honest to God, for them too, is to rein them in. Um, to affect positive outcomes, but I guess we'll talk about that. Yeah, you know that's that's actually the the hardest part about uh, the solution that I was going to talk about. Uh, but I'll I'll go ahead and and move on with the other half of this uh, little spiel here on the 
economic policy and shareholder value. Right. Um, I'll just finish off the Boeing thing. Uh, when Boeing purchased McDonnell Douglas, it was in 1997, they, for some ungodly reason, chose to adopt its business strategy, that is shareholder value. Boeing's track record since then has been poor. Uh, first, there was the 787, which was horribly delayed and over budget, which was completely out of character for Boeing. And then the 737 MAX situation, which again was an issue because of overwork and timelines. Experienced and talented employees uh, left in droves. The employees were cut out of the process of managing Boeing and their products suffered huge setbacks as a result. I think that that company is one of the best examples of how companies that honor their employees, rewarding them highly for the value they produce, and including them in every step of the process, not only empowers the employees themselves, but leads to successful business. Uh, and in that way, I think the interests and ideas that you and your followers bring to the table are incredibly valued in creating an economy that's led by robust, successful companies and rewarded and valued workers. So our area of disagreement isn't so much in kind of the, the I guess you would say, material outcome that we're uh, getting here, but the motivation behind it. I want a growing economy with robust, successful companies and well-rewarded workers. I think that model is the best way to raise the quality of life for everyone living in this country. And ultimately, that's my goal. And I hope that's the goal of anyone that's in, that's in politics. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, I'll agree, certainly. I mean, long term, obviously, I have more aggressive economic designs uh, that I'd like to see implemented. But in terms of general principles, I think that's a good way to work with what we have. Um, I think in terms of implementation, there's there's a happy medium to the strategy that you need, but it seems like, um, well, there are just, the, the shareholder value model is predicated on a bunch of tenuous assumptions. Uh, for example, that a corporation with a high stock value is, is doing well, that's generally an assumed thing, uh, that things which increase the stock value of the company improve the company, you know, uh, and that um, the decision making t towards ends that raise the you know the the, the price of the company um, th that if that's done in a top down manner you know that's like an acceptable dictation essentially you r you rest on the assumption that the shareholders act in their economic best interests you know in a in a sort of Randian sense and as a product of that you know their um, what do you call it chivalrous chivalrous greed. Uh, fuels the economy. It, it, it moves things forward. And I don't think that works for a few reasons. I mean, there are obvious technical ones like, uh, you know, workers have valuable insights into the functionality of companies that management can't really understand. So cutting workers out of that process means that you're going to have problems governing from the top. You have this problem. It's funny you bring uh, Boeing because this is like the history of the airline uh, industry. Really bad top-down decision-making where you will have engineering disasters have billions put into them. Um, and, 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 you know, like with, with multiple, like just, just failure after failure, you know, and it's being done usually to fulfill a contract or because the, um, 
the announcement of the plane's existence to begin with, you know, the buzz that was generated, it was good for the company. It raised the, sh the shareholder value. Um, I agree with all this. Uh, my only contention is that I don't think it's really possible to address this issue without cutting back on the power the shareholders have uh, in terms of, you know, the direction the company goes. I think that their interests are not the company's interests. And it's ultimately the health of the company, both in terms of its uh, profits and its productive output that are beneficial for society and for the workers uh, who are employed there. I think that that um, that schism, that lack of an overlap, uh, it causes a bunch of problems that could be fixed with additional worker control. And here's where it gets interesting. Regarding things we can use to fix the issue of shareholder values grip on our business policy, I think it comes as a mix of two things, education and incentivization. So we need to push back on the support of shareholder value in business schooling, replacing it with, you know, sort of the more traditional business education that existed prior and it valued employees' contributions to the process of creating quality products and services and that their retainment synergizes efforts over time, leading to highly efficient business. Now, the other side of the coin that I got about, uh, got the idea about when talking to your folks on Discord, one of them presented the idea of using government to influence companies into worker ownership. You know, obviously that's not a Republican idea. <laughs> but given the previous examples, we see that companies that choose to do this on their own are the best companies. Boeing rose to the top. They beat out McDonnell Douglas. They beat out, um, what was, who made the, I don't want to get in the weeds about it. Uh, so I thought about what things that the government can do from a Republican point of view that would encourage companies to move into this good direction. And the solution I came up with, with was what I call incentivization. Government can empower companies by providing tax incentives to reward employees with stock compensation, uh, aka ownership in the company. For example, if a company includes an additional 10% of an employee's compensation as stock, that 10% could be tax deductible from the company to some degree. Taking away the idea of percentages for clear reasons, we could instead target it as up to $5,000 or maybe $10,000 paid to an employee annually as stock can be tax deductible, again, to a certain degree. And plus wording it in such a way would prevent abuse of the system by just you know, giving an executive like 10 million in stock or something ridiculous. In this way, we can promote the good business practices and also help to solve that issue that you stated about the stock owners having different motivations than the workers. If the workers turn into a sizable group of stock owners in the company, then suddenly that problem gets a lot smaller. And that's doable because a lot of these companies, you know, if we're disregarding Tesla and Apple, whose you know stocks are way overinflated, a lot of these companies have, you know, revenues that are in expenditures that are not really that much smaller than their stock price. And oftentimes they, they can be bigger. Uh, so it, the employee compensation as stock would actually begin to make up a sizable portion 
uh, enough to matter in these decisions uh, over time. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I'm down with the concept of incentivization, though obviously the severity of the incentivization is going to vary. I mean, technically, do something or will arrest you is an incentive. Um, oh, a, har yeah. a, a harsh one, yeah, uh, admittedly, one that'll make people angry. I guess a few concerns are, I don't think there is any real pressure in, in Washington or, or at a state level, really, to, to push for these... Um, these these reforms that would allow for greater worker control or that would incentivize greater worker control because i don't really think well again to use our term people are very class conscious i don't think it's something people are very aware of or something people fight for um and i don't think it's something that the shareholders want either uh of course if the company was ever restructured in such a way as to allow the workers real control the first thing that would go would be the shareholders um, I, that's sort of the tipping point, right? As a matter of self-preservation, they can never allow too much worker control. You know, Boeing was run better at that time than a lot mm -hmm. of comparable alternatives, but in other words, it was run better, sure, but it wasn't worker ownership. At the end of the day, it was just the mantra that taking better care of your workers means you have a better company. And that's a sensible, you know, business strategy for as long as it works and for as long as people pretend to care. Um, but in, in, in terms of a substantive shift in, in, in the power, uh, I don't think minor incentivizations will suffice, especially since, you know, the government can offer as many tax incentives as they want, but it will never come close to the amount of money that shareholders stand to lose if they ever lost the ability to, uh, you know, well, maintain their positions, uh, to, to, to control these companies, you know, through, through the majority share, uh, through the board that they were elected to it would be um trivially trivially easy for a company with sufficient worker control to just essentially oust them and at that point i mean no tax incentive will ever make up for that unless you want to you know pay everyone like 10 million a year to just sit at home and twiddle their thumbs i think it ultimately it's a power grab and that power grab needs to be facilitated through some strong arming um because the incentives just won't cut it See, here's an area where I think we disagree on. Because, for one, this is actually a, a policy idea phrased in the way I presented it. Uh, that is, uh, employee compensation as stock being tax deductible uh, is a policy idea that actually may be palatable to uh, Republicans and Democrats in Congress. This may actually, this could actually have a chance of being utilized. It's just a matter of raising awareness about the issue of uh, shareholder values, deleterious effect on business, mm -hmm. raising awareness of that issue to the point where there is enough uh, motivation to get this through, to get something done to help fix the problem. And because all of, I shouldn't say all of these politicians, because the politicians I've talked to recognize that Income inequality and wealth inequality is a bad thing, no matter what card they're carrying. I think that with sufficient education about this, that we could actually make this happen. It's, Not in the next five years, but it's something we could do down the line. And in this way, the, the workers, they, they, they'll, they'll own enough of the company so that their word matters. But... 
you know, ultimately the stock price and the, the stock ownership is going to be mostly traded on the open market. It's, it's up to the workers whether they want to maintain that stock or sell it. Uh, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure where you were going with the shareholders not being happy about the workers owning a certain percentage of the company and doing something to prevent that. I'm not really sure why that motivation would be in place, but in my mind, the moment the workers owned a sufficient part of the company, they're simply getting uh, you know, sufficient compensation. They're staying at their jobs, they're working harder, and their company then dominates the market. It's a strong business strategy. It's not something that the shareholders, the other, the outside shareholders would necessarily be against. And of course, the workers that own that part of the stock as well do want to see their stock price go up. They do want to see their retirements essentially uh, grow in value. Uh, you know, as, as those workers age out, they're going to sell that stock and, uh, you know, as, as a portion of their retirement. So, you know, ultimately, I don't think it's as combative of a situation as as I believe, and I, I, I don't want to put your words in your mouth, this was just my interpretation of what you said, uh, I don't think it's as combative of a situation between the existing shareholders and the workers because the end result is a strong business. Well, keep in mind that stock ownership as part of a workers' compensation package doesn't actually give them any meaningful control over the company. There are companies that do this, but it doesn't allow you to, bless you, it doesn't allow you to... That was my dog. Oh, well, bless them, I suppose. <laughs> it, it doesn't allow you to make any decisions about how the company is run. It's essentially just an incentive attached to your pay, the same way they attach it to a CEO's pay. The better the company does, the more money you get. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose that's nice, but I, I don't really think that necessarily confers control. With regards to the, you know, the likelihood of business owners acting in the best interest of their own business, I, I think, I, I mean, I guess I don't really know how much they care. They seem to care about their own well-being. Um, but as we were talking about the shiftlessness of these things with CEOs yeah. and shareholders sort of cycling in and out as people buy and sell, you know, looking to pump up a company's value, get in when you can, get out when you need to. Um, that's not the case with all companies, mind you. I'm not saying that every shareholder's board has been there for like eight minutes, you know. But um, there, there definitely isn't a perfect overlap between the interests of the business and the shareholders, nor the interests of the business and the interests of the workers. Um, we, need, we need more than this for proper, uh, for proper worker control. Uh, and if they were ever to get enough control, uh, the working uh, people of any given company, you know, the first thing they would do, I imagine, to save money would be to uh, get rid of the shareholders. Because worker control is inimical to standard shareholder control, you know, with the board of directors. I apologize and all for that. interrupting, but mm -hmm. you'll have to elaborate on me by what you mean by get rid of the shareholders. Because uh, oh. at that point, they're the shareholders. I, I'm not sure I understand. Well, the share, the board, the shareholders control the company because they own it. They literally buy it out. But it's not a properly democratic model. If it was just a collection of workers who bought it out, then they would just become the new shareholders. The disillusion of the system, which allows for that kind of ownership, is necessary for real worker control. 
which is why worker co-ops aren't listed on the NASDAQ, right? I mean, I mean, there's some variants here. There are different like types of, you know, sometimes companies will list like a portion, a non-controlling portion of their company um, and people right. can, you know, invest over that. And I don't necessarily have a problem with shares being used as a means of investment, non-controlling shares, where you're just essentially betting on the company's well-being, but you're not capable of controlling it. But the traditional shareholder model, where you have both ownership and control, can't work in tandem with worker control. So it, it, it seems like outside of, um, you know, internal pressures like unionization, uh, the only, you, you, can't, you have to go one direction or the other. And right now, since the power stick is in the hand of the shareholders, I don't know why they'd ever let that happen. It seems like <laughs> very much not in their interest. Ah, the reason it would be in their interest, the reason it'd be in the business management interest is because of that tax deduction idea. So say you've got company A and company B, baseline salary of 50,000 offered for the same position doing the same work. And company A chooses to engage with that tax incentive. So their total compensation is actually 60000 but they're paying the same amount of tax. Well, no, they're paying less tax, excuse me. They're having the same amount of expense paying 60000 as the other company is paying 50000 because that extra 10000 is deducted from their taxes. So it is in their best interest in order to get the best employees to include that compensation. You see what I'm saying there? But not control. Oh, what control could you offer through that? If you're talking about a tax incentive for a kind of limited democratization of the workplace, I, I think that's nice. But, you know, real worker control um, is going to entail something more. I, there's no tax incentive you could offer, you know, the, the, the board of directors to leave the position, right? To, to dissolve their ownership. Um, not unless there was some kind of force involved, you know, like the government just cracking down on that. Well, see, the, here's the thing where it gets interesting, because obviously these things are not monolithic. Companies are not monolithic. Even boards are not monolithic most of the time. Uh, and shareholders as a whole are not. And shareholders elect the members of the board, obviously. Uh, so if it's in, in a manager's best interest, to include the compensation because it costs the company nothing and it gets them a better chance at getting a better employee, they're going to do that. They're going to include the stock compensation that is tax deductible, the ownership compensation to the employee. So that individual motivation works. Well, so to, that to provide what? Just to be specific, just so I know fully, what's the tax incentive for? Oh, sure. Sorry, I, I mentioned it earlier, but um, we, we may have glossed over it. Saying up to $5,000 or maybe $10,000 uh, that is paid to an employee in stock ownership, I guess controlling stock, if you want to be specific, can be tax deductible. That is, if you pay an employee stock compensation as part of their compensation package, that the money that is, or excuse me, the amount that is paid in stock is deducted from the amount of taxes that is owed to the government by the company itself. That's really just a subsidy though, isn't it? I mean, at that point, you might as well just have a UBI where the government just gives everyone, like, like I understand the, the incentive structure for getting better employees, but 
in this case, we're not really taking anything from the company. You know, we're just, we're, the government is just giving them that much extra, you know? Right. I mean, and you can, you can, you know, raise rates to, to, to a level where you are receiving the same amount of in, uh, income from the economy overall. But uh, this is why we have incentives all over the place. And this is why we have rates that where we, you know, nominally we have a 10% rate and we actually collect one and a half. But that aside, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really simple way to get the motivations of the various parties involved on the course towards creating better business governance, creating a model where the employees of the company own a sufficient portion of the company so that they can help guide it in the right direction. But how would they? I mean, unless, as, as a group, I mean, even if you were to issue 51% collectively to all the workers, there would essentially just be two competing shareholder boards, right? To, to a cent, or they would just elect kind of a representative. I don't think it meaningfully challenges the issue with capital acquisition. This is just kind of, uh, I mean, it's, it's essentially just sort of a government subsidized bonus package, right? I mean, at the, at the end of the day, you know, the fact that we're talking about subsidies sort of undercuts the truth. The fact that, you know, um, the, it's very difficult to get the shareholders to do what we want. Because otherwise, you know, we would just be talking about things they should do, right? I mean, if, they're, if they have right. a proclivity towards good business management, they would do it. So we're talking about, you know, oh, the government will give them this or that, you know, tax subsidies. But I don't think shareholders are going to do anything uh, at all without being forced to. If you look for the history of labor, like this is the case every time, right? I mean, all the way back to the feudal days to now, every time there was an update, OSHA, fire codes, you know, emergency escape ladders, hours, no child labor, no slavery, every time. It's never like uh, the government incentivized it or you know, uh, there was a tax incentive or whatever. It was do it or we'll put you in jail or sometimes we'll shoot you. And that just seems to be the, the thing that drives all of these positive changes. And, 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 I, I, and I'm not trying to, to, to overrun or anything, but when we talk about stuff like subsidies, I'm all in favor of incentives, you know. I, I think that can go a long way. But past a point, you know, um, we're, we're really just kind of like giving our scraps to, to an institution that is already quite powerful, which will be only made more powerful, by the way, with uh, tax subsidy, subsidies given uh, for, for offering, you know, um, shares their employees. We have to get to the heart of the problem, which is the very existence of that divide between worker and owner. Well, you know, that's, that would be obviously an area we disagree on. Uh, I believe that the best way to raise the quality of life for everyone in this country is to grow the economy via uh, minimizing wealth inequality, uh, but wealth inequality will still exist. Minimizing income inequality, but income inequality will still exist. Uh, because ultimately, the incentivization of doing well for yourself does lead to innovation. We just can't let that incentivization uh, get out of control to the point where a CEO is making 5,000 times that of uh, what an entry-level salaried employee is. Um, well, why wouldn't it, though? I mean, that seems to be working okay for that's them. That's our job. 
<laughs> well, I, well I agree. To, but to there's, influence them to not do that. But there, well, there's no no incentive the government can afford will outpace the billions they make. I mean, you know, somebody like Jeff Bezos, like what incentive does he need? You know, he he'll get more money ignoring the the incentives than he could ever get by 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 kowtowing to them. I think sometimes well, Jeff you, Bezos you is to, an asshole. He, that is true, but there are many little Jeff Bezoses, right? And we're not appealing to better nature here, you know. Shareholders will and have done monstrous things if it increases the evaluation of their companies. We Very think, yeah, we think domestically, but like all one has to do is look at a trip uh, of industrial accidents abroad to find American companies, you know, working through the deaths of thousands of Indians or Pakistani or Chinese workers because they cut safety regulations to make, you know, that much more money per unit sold. Um, we, we, uh, with the, we need the stick. The last time income inequality was this bad, we needed a new deal to sort it out, right? I mean, sometimes incentives, uh, they only go so far. And this, this kind of brings us back to what I said about, I kind of operate pragmatically here. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I can get legislation through Congress that uh, where we're hitting companies with a big stick and telling them to give ownership to workers. But I do think that an incentivization structure via subsidy where we target this as viewing it as a way to do better business, as a way to make better companies. The companies will make more money. The employees will make more money. The country will grow richer. Society will improve. This is the end goal of this system where we get the employees back involved in the process. They're not going to own the majority of the company. Most of these employees are honestly probably going to sell their stock. That's just the way things go. But it is going to put us on a path away because the things that set us on these paths are so minor. Jack Welch is a footnote in history. The people that started shareholder value as a concept, we don't even know their names. Well, I don't know their names. I'm sure the internet does. But we... These little things like these subsidies can cause such a chain reaction of individual motivations because these groups are not monolithic. These shareholders are not monolithic. Each manager, that single manager that decides to implement this subsidy when hiring their next worker because it gives them an advantage over the next guy trying to hire him, it's that simple. I and that worker gets ownership in the company. I don't, I mean, again, it, it, look, this isn't to say I necessarily think this would be bad for workers or anything. I just don't see how it's any different from the government just directly cutting, like, why not just have the government directly provide a tax incentive to all workers? Like, why even go through the company, right? Because the, the, the government, the corporation is not giving up any money or power. The power relations are completely unaffected by this. What we're really talking about is, yeah, is, is, is essentially just a, a, a government a tax incentive, but the, the power relations, you know, that's what need to be addressed. If we want to deal with income inequality, you can't do that without, because you look over the past hundred years, you know, corporate power has risen dramatically. Unions are down, um, you know, uh, we, we've had a massive deregulatory boom since Reagan, you know, uh, Nixon created the EPA and it took all of like 25 years before it got axed and then cut in half again and again. It, it, corporate power has grown markedly. 
so I don't think talking about cutting corporate power should be treated as unrealistic. I agree that we can't just put forward some congressional proposal to make all businesses worker co-ops or whatever, but I think that there is, we do concede something when the conversation is limited to measures which do nothing to address the power imbalance and instead just kind of, you know, um, T touch at the edges, you know, benefit a company by giving them higher quality workers uh, because they have more bargaining power because they have that tax incentive to levy um, at the government's expense and the workers get a bit more money. The government could do it directly to the workers, but then the corporation wouldn't get the reflexive benefit. It would just be a direct wealth transfer, which I'm in favor of, mind, but, you know. Yeah, you know, it's it's really trying to instill this the idea back of companies like boeing that's why i brought boeing up initially as as my prime example here where because this employees you know had ownership because the employees were valued that company succeeded and their workers stayed with them the whole time boeing dominated the airline market and you know then they adopted shareholder value and everything went down the tank. So we've got clear examples where if the companies do this, then they treat the workers a lot better. Those workers are much happier. Those workers are much better compensated. So while I don't think that, you know, worker ownership of the means of production, if I'm to be meanie here, uh, is necessarily the right path, I do think that worker involvement in the means of production uh, is not an idea that's reserved for the left, nor is it an idea that necessarily needs... Oh, come on, Dougie. You want to go out? Uh, nor an, an idea that necessarily needs to be done with direct government legislation telling someone to do something, but providing a small incentive to push them in that direction will simply be enough. I'm, I'm kind of rambling a little bit there. That was definitely not a fully thought out idea. Uh, no, no, not I at all. Forgive me. No, no, it's no, it's fine. It's just there's it's uh, it's a kind of capitalist realism, I think, where the the range of potential solutions to our problems is it's limited very fiercely. Um, with regards to this, I, I don't know if it, would, if it would incentivize that change. There's a reason why these corporations have moved over to the current model, the more exploitative one, and it just it seems to work for them better. I mean, in terms of them acting in their own interest, maybe the corporations do worse, but they're wealthier than ever. We can see that because the income inequality is so high. If the corporations do poorly, I mean, they have their golden parachutes, they can loot it. You know, the, 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 uh, the FEC... Uh, historically has been, you know, uh, done fuck all, I think, to, um, to, to, to prevent this, this stuff from happening. And it, it, the, the, the income inequality is a testament to the fact that what they're doing from their perspective is working right now, you know. I don't think anything can change that except for some measure that directly addresses it, you know. Um, severe taxation... Uh, I, I, at this point, I don't think the corporate level biz, like stuff is going to work that well vis-a-vis um, -vis incentive structures because I feel like right now corporations are so 
bleedingly efficient, it's difficult to, to inject any incentive that would cause them to do things differently that would be superior to the accrued benefits from doing things the way they are right now. And there are a lot of things you can't incentivize, right? Like promoting from within, I, gu I guess you could. Uh, you know, government will subsidize pay to a, you know, to a, to a manager if they've worked at that place 20 years. You could find a way, some means-tested thing, but like, why should we have to? Why, sh why should my tax dollars go to bribing companies into doing things that are better when my tax dollars could go to police putting them in jail, right? I mean, like, I, like potentially well, we could strike at the stick. problem here. Huh? Carrot of the stick. Yeah. If you hit them with a stick, they're going to find a way to dodge it. I, I mean, historically, they have it, They're definitely going to come. The regulations have crippled them in the past. And by cripple, I mean sure, not their sure. industry, but it's, it's, you know, it's put them in line. But the carrots, right now, no carrot we can provide will pull them out of what they're doing. It's very efficient for them, these, uh, this, this current model. I think we, we, we need to be very, we need to be aggressive. And we need to normalize that anti-corporate language, you know. I don't think that's mutually exclusive to a sensible perspective on economics or like a reasonable um, reformist approach, you know. What can you realistically pass through Congress? Well, I understand right now I'm not saying anything you could fit into a bill. I know that. Um, I mean, not a, not a bill that'll pass at least, but I, you know, because I, I haven't sat down and sort of thought of ways to chart out like a a, a a a policy path. But I think that's the road that we need to be on because I mean, I just worry that eventually, you know, government control is going to be so scarce and corporate control is going to be so significant that you know, the government is essentially just an instrument to use tax dollars to try to cajole corporations into doing slightly less destructive stuff than they would otherwise. I like the is it carbon carbon credits? Wait, did those yeah. work or did those not work? Um, I, there was something that worked and something that didn't. If I recall, if I recall the idea of carbon credits uh, mainly just ended up making places like bakeries uh, go out of business because just by the nature of the work industry that they were involved in, they had to use a lot more. Uh, but uh, I'm certainly not an expert on that. But carbon taxes, hey, you emit, you know, you emit uh, uh, pollution, uh, you know, here's the solution. You smack them with the tax hammer. I mean, that's fun. And then we have more money to uh, bribe corporations into providing stock options to their workers, I guess. I, I apologize. I understand I'm not speaking directly of policy. We've 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 moved some, somewhat from that. I have significantly oh, le fun. less faith than you do in the likelihood that the carrot is is capable of derailing like the multi-trillion dollar modern American industrial machine. I feel like it's a very big train. I feel like we need more than a penny. You know, we need to like lay a couple of cars on the tracks. <laughs> Well, if you've ever seen the videos, I think cars laying on the tracks uh, may not do a whole lot either. But uh, that's true. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of a thought experiment because you know we've seen the trend of growing income and wealth inequality going on in the last two decades. It was probably started to being uh, recognized as a problem by uh, mainstream uh, politicians and uh, news outlets 
probably around the year 2000. That's when they started seeing the trend and going like, hey guys, something's wrong here. Uh, and we've kind of figured out since then that directly taxing to fix the problem hasn't really worked. We haven't figured it out. The problem's only gotten worse. So that's why trying to come up with a novel idea of incentivization, incentivization is hard to say that word a whole bunch of times in a row. Yes, for sure. Um, as a different approach may be more effective by addressing the individual motivation. Um, but I think we're going a little bit around and around on this point. Um, uh, and I also think that we've reached a good understanding of it. Uh, so if you'd like to move on to lobbying, uh, since we've, I guess, spent almost 45 minutes on this one, uh, <laughs> we, we can go ahead and move on. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's hit up lobbying. I, we, we have shared values. I think that's, I think that's important. Um, but yeah, um, hit me up. All right. So lobbying, <laughs> it's uh, pretty spicy. Oh God. I actually don't expect to get along on this, but I at least hope that I can help you and your viewers understand a little bit more about how the system works and the protections that are in place to prevent abuse. And when I say lobbying, I'm mostly talking about on the federal level at this point. I think there's, there's state lobbying, uh, of course, but um, well, the local, most well-known lobbying happens on federal. Local lobbying is basically just mob bullying, right? I mean, if you're the mayor of some <laughs> 20,000 population town, and there's like one, you know, one factory or whatever, you know, they just, they just send a guy to your, your mayor's office and go like, hey, it would be a shame if all these jobs disappeared, huh? You know, it's a little more explicit at the local level, I think. Well, I'm, pl I'm playing, I'm perhaps. playing a bit, only a little bit, but a, a bit. Um, but yes, continue. Uh, it's actually important that we are talking about federal since, uh, a few of the protections in place are specifically federal. Mm. Uh, but first, let's get a couple things out of the way. The most basic misconception of lobbying is that uh, is people pay politicians to do or support certain things. And let me be clear, and you probably already know this, the majority of your viewers probably already know this, but some of them may not. So it is against the law for a congressperson to accept any form of payment, gift, service, event tickets, etc., in return for political favors. Any payment that a congressperson receives before, during, or after their time in office is so heavily scrutinized by the opposing party that things falling through the cracks is very difficult. Both parties wish for nothing more than even a shred of proof that the other one is corrupt due to the damage that would do to their opponents. A congressperson with evidence of corruption is virtually guaranteed to be replaced by a member of the opposite party in the next election. I hope that's somewhat logical, unless you know one believes the entire system is some elaborate dog and pony show, then that may not work. But I hope for the rest of us, that's, that's somewhat logical, right? We, we, we might believe it's somewhat of a dog and pony show, but no, I, I don't think it's generally done through, through that. I think that'd be a very, it's a very stupid way of, of using corporate power to influence politicians. I think generally, I've used the term lobbying in a kind of catch-all term before. It does have a technical definition. I think when I've used it, I'm, I'm applying it in a couple of ways. Do you mind? Do you mind if I say just just to go for it? Go for it. Yeah. So I'm I'm generally talking about the the practice of using material incentives to to incentivize politicians to do X, Y, or Z. Um, I I think I mean the big ways this happens. Obviously, you have super PACs and you know 
corporations, uh, you know, they you can't donate that much to a person or, well, you can't donate at all to a person for political favors. Um, but you can, you can toss quite a bit either directly or indirectly to, um, to, to campaigns or to adjacent causes. Of course, uh, there are also politicians who are swayed from perceived material benefit. Like for example, senators and congressmen, uh, uh, have a definite favorability towards uh, bills that might disproportionately affect, um, you know, something like, for example, like this is a classic one, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, an arms manufacturer uh, 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 wants to, you know, gets in on a contract and, you know, they're going to set up a factory in, in New Hampshire and all the New Hampshire congressmen and senators are like, oh, yeah, oh, we, yeah, we want this because they know it'll create like 30,000 jobs or whatever. Um, that well, kind that's of thing. a perfectly appropriate motivation for their, you know, they're, they're just representing the people of their district. But I think the people of their district would be quite happy for that. Oh, sure. Uh, but, but, but keep in yeah, mind, that's, that's the same with the guy who asks the mayor if it sure would be a shame whether or not they lost all their jobs, you know? That's always how the incentives work, right? I mean, it, the line between properly representing your constituents and doing corporate you know, uh, do, acting in the interests of corporations in ways that align with the interests of your constituents is kind of a fuzzy one. But technically, it's broad enough that you could include like a lot of really bad stuff, right? I mean, you you could you could there you could act corrupt in line with those principles if if you wanted to. You know, like New York City mayors um, who would like overlook certain businesses paying their taxes or like their health and codes or whatever, because if it's shut down, they'd have to look into 40 other places. And, you know, then a whole neighborhood goes mm. out of business, like that kind of stuff, you know? So I, I don't, right. I don't think it's like a, a problem with illegal behavior so much as it is a fundamental consequence of the relationship between power and capital. Um, no, I actually touched exactly on what you just said at the end in, in different words, but, um, I would like to talk quickly about how lobbying, act, the actual, you know, lobbying as an industry functions. Uh, lobbyists are paid by organizations, whether they be companies, governments, unions, NGOs, etc. Then those lobbyists contact politicians and express the interests of whatever organization they represent. That's done very openly. So why is it that a congressperson would answer their phone to someone if we're operating on the assumption that what I said earlier about, you know, uh, illegal payments, gifts, et cetera, is true. Like in what circumstances do you answer your phone? Do you answer to random numbers? Do you answer to friends and family? No. Right. Oh yeah. I answered, answer to, I answer to no one. Uh, but yeah, well, yeah, I, I expect politicians to, to work closely with corporations. It seems like a logical extension of the system we live in. Right. I mean, corporations are literally the economic arm of our country. Like, there's very direct shared interest between these groups in terms of getting things to work right. Oh, no, no, no. They will not just answer the phone to a company. No, no, no. So you answer your phone to your friends and family, right? Not just random numbers. Yes, sometimes. Right. So Congress people work the exact same way. The reason that they're answering their phone to lobbyists is it's because it's someone they already know. The secret is most lobbyists are longtime members of the political process. These are retired congresspeople, retired congressional chiefs of staff, etc. They've worked with the people in office for decades and know them very closely. Because of that, their perspective 
on issues as highly valued by those politicians with whom they cooperated the most with while they were in office. So let's draw a comparison. I promise I don't mean to be patronizing. Mm -hmm. uh, I just think this will help illustrate the concept. If you're to listen to two people give you advice on what concert to go to, one person being your best friend, the other person being a total stranger, which one would you probably listen to? Probably the former. Right, obviously. That's, that's the reality of lobbying. Politicians' friends get paid to express the interests of organizations who would otherwise be unable to get heard by those politicians. Now, a congressperson isn't stupid, gen generally. Uh, they know that their friend is being paid to express those opinions. Nor are the lobbyists stupid, so they're not trying to hide it. It's not so much of, here's what I think as your best friend, lies, but here's what you know, GM thinks about this legislation and why, and here's what I think about that. Because of that, lobbyists just generally don't take clients whose stances on policy they don't agree with already, because they can't fool their friends, the people they worked with for decades, about what they support. And that was part one of a two-part podcast. If you're interested in finishing it, then uh, you should wait for the next episode.